0: Welcome to Found Objects with Meaning, a podcast series from Wallpaper Magazine in collaboration with Vodafone Smart Tech, who are creating innovative smart devices that help people stay connected to what matters most in their lives. My name is Jonathan Bell, and I'm Wallpaper Magazine's Transport and Technology Editor. In these podcasts, I'll be talking to six people about their personal and professional attachment to a wide variety of physical objects. We'll be discussing the stuff that surrounds them, the things that define them, and the objects that have inspired them focusing on something they still treasure, as well as the precious possession they've lost along the way. Whether it's transformative technologies, favourite tools or inspirational artworks, Found Objects of Meaning is all about the creative and emotional force of the objects that we have and the things that we've lost. My guest today is the London-based designer Nippa Doshi, who co-founded Doshi Levine with Jonathan Levine in 2000. Both designers studied at the Royal College of Art, after which they came together personally and professionally, synthesising two very different backgrounds and approaches, Jonathan's upbringing as the child of toymakers in Scotland, and Nippers in Ahmedabad, surrounded by Corbusian brutalism, art deco elegance, and traditional crafts. Over the past two decades, Doshi Levine have combined Jonathan's background in materials and manufacturing with Nippers' immersive and passionate appreciation of colour and form. As a result, Doshi Levine's projects are emotional yet practical, mixing expressive forms with functional rigour. The studio's work is hugely varied, from fabrics for Kavadrat to furniture for Moroso and B&B Italia, as well as more tailored bespoke projects for Gallery Creo and Wallpaper's very own Handmade Series. I'm delighted to welcome Nippa to talk about her relationship with the objects she's lost and loved, and how physical things embody memory and place, and help shape her collaborative creative practice. Nippadoshi, Doshi, welcome to our podcast. As we're going to be focusing on objects in our talk today, I'd like to start by asking you about your relationship with material goods. Are you a great collector?
1: Um, Yes, I do. I have a huge collection of, um, you know, a lot of uh, objects from India, you know, often objects that are discarded, which are really old, you know, that are recycled just for the metal value, which are really beautifully cast objects. I have a lot of sotsas' work as well, and paintings and our own prototypes in the house and bags and shoes, you know, so it's a kind of real spectrum of things.
0: Do you find that you attribute meaning to particular objects and that you have to have those objects around in order to get a certain sense from them?
1: I always say that I'm, I'm a material girl. I really believe in materialism in a way that, for me, um, objects and things are almost um, a kind of symbol of our existence and I think that I find them very reassuring and And also I think they express human endeavour, creativity and for me a beautifully made object is almost it's a kind of, it's like saying I exist and, and I think for me um, you know I can't rid myself of the love of objects. I wish I could.
0: As part of this podcast is talking to people about what objects mean to them and objects they've lost as well and how those meanings live on in memory. I wondered if you had a particular object that references your past and something which you still think about.
1: Um, I think uh, one of the things I really uh, uh, remember very distinctly from my childhood in Bombay was the portrait of my grandfather in the living room and for a long time i thought it was actually a black and white photograph and and it was only when i was a bit older and i looked closer i realized that it was a life-size painting of him painted as a black and white photograph and and of course it's still in the house. I don't know if it's still in my um, uh, grandfather's house. The house still exists. It's a white art deco building in central Bombay. And of course, I want that picture. But I think if I ask my relatives, they'll probably want to keep it. Although I know they don't care about my grandfather.
0: <laughs> so w- was this a thing uh, no, at that time to create paintings that looked like photographs?
1: I think... It was a moment when black and white photography was still quite new and there was novelty around it. And And I think that for me it's quite strange that it's a painting recreated like a photograph, whereas it should have been the other way around. And, and, and I think also my grandfather, it's a portrait of him, which is quite strange in a way, that he commissioned a portrait of himself while he was alive and, you know, um, and he had it in his living room. Um, but, yeah, I think it was it was quite rare to actually have a painting that looked like a black-and-white photograph.
0: Have you ever seen another one like it in your travels?
1: Uh, I haven't, actually. Um, you know, I there was a moment when I thought I would like to commission a painting uh, like that.
0: So was your grandfather a very influential figure in your life, do you think?
1: I think, you know he really was because I think he introduced me you know not knowingly but you know there was a lot of care that was taken in his house and the way the bed was made every day or the way the food was laid on the table or even my grandmother she used to make fresh garlands of jasmine flowers when she used to pray to Krishna every day and I think that for me it was almost I grew up kind of almost thinking design was a gesture, it was a beautiful way of doing things. And, and that's something that's really stayed with me, this idea that design is not necessarily about an object, it can also be about an action or a way of doing things and caring about the simplest of human gestures and, and rituals.
0: I guess we remember actions and rituals just as much as we remember objects and have a me- strong cultural memory of those as well.
1: Yeah, and also I think that often they're they're linked together, that the action and the ritual normally involves an object. And I think it can make... And I think that's why we find that, you know, a lot of designers really love everyday objects, not because they're necessarily beautiful in themselves, but what they remind us of.
0: Did you ever want to be an artist when you were growing up?
1: I think, um, yes, it's something... You know i'm always envious of artists and it's one of my secret kind of um i don't know it's like i want to paint like picasso and sing like kishori amonkar you know these are my life's ambitions and i i don't think it will happen in this life but yes definitely to be a indian classical singer and an artist are my I, i wish i was those two things
0: So how have you channelled that frustrated creativity into the work of Doshi Levine?
1: Actually, I draw a lot. I think that's just about the only thing I do in the studio at the moment. And I'm completely, you know, away from the computer. I'm not involved in any kind of real development of, uh, you know, the work that we do. Yes and no. But I think it's very rooted in... I draw every day. So I think also I you know, often I'll look at a painting and I'll try to recreate it. So my sketchbooks are also studying the work of other artists. And, and of course, I've trained to sing in Indian classical music. I've just done my postgraduate diploma. So I know that I'm not going to be excellent at either. But, uh, you know, it's definitely, you know, when people ask me also what you know if you could have any design object what would you have and I said it would never be an object it would be a work of art that's what I really want not a designed object I can buy that no problem you know.
0: Do you think that it's still important to convey a sense of artistry in the end product though and so that it doesn't it doesn't look effortless but it looks like it's been drawn designed has some sense of flowing creativity in it?
1: Absolutely, I think that, and probably you can see that in our work, you can see that it's not generated on the computer. And I can definitely, you know, tell the difference between an object that was designed on the computer and and objects that are, or or designs that have been first crafted and worked on and then, you know, become a real thing. Um, Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think
0: so. I think what I'm trying to understand here is that if you're treating the design process as an artist as an artistic one, as well as um, as sort of making maquettes and working on manufacturing yeah. and models and things like that, um, at, at what point do you lose the artistry and enter the realm of the mass-produced object? And how? Never.
1: Is it? We never lose yeah. it, and I can say that absolutely with confidence and honesty, that we've never ever compromised the. Uh, the artistry and the artistic nature of our design process. And I think that has also got to do with the people that we work with, you know, whether it's Quadrat or B&B Italia or Moroso, Hay, Gallery Creo. I think that that's also the kind of beauty of European design, that that artistic part is why companies come to you, you know, and, and I think we've been lucky in that sense and, and we haven't compromised. I know, does it sound really arrogant, but it's true. You know?
0: <laughs> I think, yeah, you're, you're l- lucky in a way that you, ha- you can work with these people who want a vision and are able to put that vision in place. Do you think that the, the way that visual culture has evolved, especially over the, the life of your studio, that there are more people willing to make that investment in, in objects which have this innate artistic quality?
1: I think definitely, you know, when we started the studio around 2000, uh, you know, although our first project was a very interesting project looking at cuisines from all over the world for a very big mass manufacturer like Tefal. But definitely, I think as an Indian designer, I found it very difficult to have an an outlet for my, I wouldn't say my approach, but just my references were different. But I think, you know, later in kind of 2010-11, there was a real kind of um, approach to having that element of beauty in design. And I think design definitely moved away from the minimalism of the 90s uh, into a more open and plural uh, discipline. And I think you can definitely see that also with the opening of the whole world as a kind of market of, of design. This whole idea of, less is more no longer applied sometimes less was less you know and um, and i think things have really changed and of course you know when you work with companies all that has to happen is you have to have the first opportunity and then you have to make a company money you know so it kind of then (laughs) you know it's that's the reality of it because ultimately companies want to make money out of the work that you do
0: it certainly seems like we're living in a much more plural age and there's a visual eclecticism around today which your work certainly embodies yes. um does that is that something that you carry through into into the the objects that you and jonathan surround yourselves with at home and in the studio
1: uh, i mean our studio is first of all it's in the east end of london which is a very diverse uh, part of london on columbia road it's an early 20th century furniture factory where we work. And and we have beautiful things, lots of samples, objects, materials in the studio. And I think, also I think I felt really displaced when I moved from India to, to, to London. And, and I think I tried to create this world in my studio and at home, which was almost like a like a bubble for me, it was almost, I was recreating the things that I love. And, and yet, you know, I'm also a very modern person. You know, I grew up with the Corbusier of uh, architecture of Corbusier, Louis Kahn, Doshi. So, you know, that plurality was always there, even in India. And I just tried to bring that to my work environment and my home in London.
0: As any, any form of creative, I, I imagine, has this issue whereby the meanings um, that they imbue with, with an object they don't design, whether they're painting or designing or, or building or writing a piece of music, at some point they have to give over to the people who are buying or consuming those objects, who will then also put their layer of meaning into those objects. Is that an interesting process for you?
1: I really, I think that whatever you design has to be open enough Um, for other people to appropriate it. And I don't think of people, you know, the people who like our things or buy our things, I don't think of them as consumers. I think of them, they're people, like us, you know, and and this idea of consuming design for me is a very strange idea. You live with design, you know. Uh, You might consume coffee or a cup, you know, a paper cup, but I feel that if there is that sense of um, beauty and thought that goes into your work. It's universal, really, the appeal. And, and I remember the first time we launched our Charpoy collection with Moroso, and these pieces were handcrafted in my aunt's workshop in India by 50 master craftspeople. Although the references were very Indian, we, that piece was mobbed because so many people felt emotionally connected to it. It reminded them of their grandparents or craftsmanship or a motif that was also from their culture. So I feel that almost the more rooted the work is, the more universal it becomes because people add their own meaning to it. And it's very important to me that, that people who have our work love it because I, I also feel if we don't love it, nobody else will.
0: I guess that's a really important Part for any designer is to bring something into the world that you you truly love, and then hope yeah. that it's going to go on and, and share that love with other people.
1: Yes, I know it sounds so kind of um, indulgent, doesn't it?
0: But I suppose also it's about not wanting to create waste or create unnecessary um, surplus or excess consumption. I just yeah. wondered how how such an attitude, which is obviously works very well when you're working in furniture or fabrics at a quite high end, do you think is ever, people are ever going to be able to give a plastic cup imbue it with that sort of level of of value, and should we be giving a plastic cup that level of value so that people don't just want to scrumple it up and throw it away?
1: I absolutely think that and I think I was thinking of one of the projects that we did for uh, Authentics, you know, that company doesn't exist anymore but um, we did a range of, uh, you know, bathroom products and, and we made these incredibly beautiful, you know, uh, uh, PMMA cups which were completely non-toxic but it had fluting and, and what I loved is that when you mass produce an object, in fact, it can have more detail because it's not like you have to create that detail every time. And even the toothbrush holder or the soap dish, which was in Bakelite, I kind of felt that, in fact, you could put more craftsmanship into an industrial object because it's so easy to reproduce it once you've got the mould. And um, and I think any object, whether it's uh, expensive or to make or is mass produced, still have that care and beauty. That's about design, right? It doesn't cost more to have design uh, or a sense of detail in an industrial product because you've just got to make thousands of them and it doesn't cost you any more.
0: For those of us who lose keys down the back of the sofa, leave bags behind or have an adventurous pet, say hello to Curve, the champion of finding. You can find almost anything with this smart GPS tracker, designed and connected by Vodafone. With unlimited tracking, it works on iOS and Android devices. It's the tiny tracker you can attach to your favourite things. To find out more, search Vodafone Smart Tech. Subscription required and terms apply. It's funny that we're talking about that this now in 2021, when those those arguments were held up as a kind of the, the, the antithesis of modernism <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> originally the things that came out of the Bauhaus were meant to be stripped of all decoration because decoration was a, a symbol of all that was anti-industrial and anti-progress but we've you're saying that we've now kind of come full circle in a way and that we are now at, at a point where decoration can be as much a part of an object
1: I think decoration or detail I think and uh, you know when I look at uh, even an Apple computer for me there is so much love that's put into that object, you know, and it's almost the opposite of Bauhaus, although, you know, it's very inspired from the work of Dieter Rams. But I think Dieter Rams was a craftsman in the way that, you know, he loved things. I could have imagined him as a jeweller and, uh, you know, and and I think that level of detail, you know, and I think, of course, we are kind of talking about very important ideas here about ornamentation is a crime, for example, you know, or ornament is crime or, You know, but it was also a reaction, I think, very much to, you know, what was happening in Europe. And I think we have to remember that European history is not the only history of the world. So a lot of this kind of backlash was against the bourgeois culture and fascism and, you know, all the other things that, um, you know, almost have defined international design, but there were other cultures all over the world that, you know, uh, already had, you know, very scientific approach to objects, architecture. So I think it's also important to remember that, that design is too Eurocentric and our history and references in design are very Eurocentric.
0: I think it's a very good argument about modernism in particular being incredibly Eurocentric and how the evolution, the sort of linear evolution of modernism and how it absorbed cultural references, whether it was from Japan um, through Art Deco, eventually became subsumed into this kind of well bland is the wrong word but in an international style which was universal and a-cultural a-historical but yes yeah it's interesting that we're now post all that and i think unfortunately it it seems that it still holds an enormous sway over a lot of people what design means and design and modernism seem in many people's eyes seem to be synonymous is that something you've come across
1: well, of course, you know, I you know I have the history of, um, you know, having grown up in an art deco house in Delhi and Bombay, and I thought art deco was a distinctly Indian architectural style. And I thought Vespa scooters were also made in India, and then, of course, I arrived and I realised they're Italian, you know. So there's that kind of reference. But, of course, you know... It, it, I studied in Ahmedabad in a design college that was founded by Charles and Ray Eames. Manifesto on what is beauty in design. You know, my aunt's house was designed by Doshi's assistant. Her family's house was designed by Corbusier. So, you know, I had the 600-year-old temples next to these incredible kind of what would you say masterpieces of modern architecture, and yet there'd be a cow outside, and you'd have a temple in in the modernist house. And I think modernism worked really well in India because the greenery and the warmth really made sense of modernism because you could have brise soleil and you could, you know, open your uh, garden and have a swimming pool with a slide from your bedroom. So I think um, for me, modernism was something quite beautiful. and, And, you know, of course, in India, we also have these incredible forts when you look at them they're actually really modern and they're quite minimal and very scientific and very spatial. So I think for me, modernism is not necessarily the absence of um, cultural references because for me, modernism can embody cultural references.
0: Perhaps that was why Corbusier and his ilk were so fascinated with India, is that they they realised that the the broader context that it gave their architecture enhanced it um, rather than worked against it and why modernism tended to be such a tabula rasa in Europe and, and America um, yes. because it didn't, didn't necessarily sit so well with the recent past.
1: Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the paintings that we have in the house is, is set in Villa Sarabai that was designed by Kobusier. Uh, uh, it's a private house for the Sarabai family in Ahmedabad. And I've been to that house Many, many times, and and what's really beautiful about that house is all the artifacts that they have in it, and and actually the Indian pieces, paintings of Picasso, drawings of Watson and Crick of the DNA structure, you know, uh, uh, what's the Jackson? Not Jackson Pollock. Who's the other guy who does the work with the dots? Lichtenstein. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: and so yeah. all that work is in that house, and it really works somehow. And the kitchen's on the floor, because the how you know, so it was interesting how Corbusier made a kitchen in that house, which is completely floor-based, because the people who cooked there were used to sitting on the floor and cooking. So, in fact, I think it's one of the most beautiful houses, because you don't think of it as brutal or modern. Mm-hmm. It's very green and lush and 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 beautiful am so i tell answering
0: me, your question yes no absolutely i think i well, i think what we seem to be coming to is this this sense of living in a time where we can appreciate things for what they are
1: yes. um,
0: much more so than, than at any point before um and that, that taps into a wider conversation about diversity and just a, a general understanding and shared understanding of objects and meanings I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit more now about the object that you love, um, an object that you have and don't ever want to lose.
1: Um, it, it's a miniature painting which um, we commissioned about three years ago on a trip to Jaipur. And it's with the, one of the seventh generation Indian miniature artists called Shami Banu. And, you know, it was interesting because also the way we found him was in this book called Love Jaipur, you know, and we called him and, and, you know, actually he lives in a very humble suburb of Jaipur and completely what you wouldn't think of as an artist studio in a very simple middle-class Indian house. And, um, and we started this conversation because his father used to restore Western miniature paintings. So he also learned perspective because a lot of Indian uh, miniature artists don't le- learn perspective in the way that we understand perspective in the Western world. And we were talking to Shamiji about doing a new piece of work in a, in a way that kind of transcends different time zones. So we have the the world of beautiful Rajput miniature paintings with Radha and Krishna and the love between them. Then the time of postmodernism. Uh, uh, post-independence in India where you had this incredible architecture by Louis Kahn, by Corbusier, Doshi, and then bringing it somehow to now with some of our objects which are inspired by Indian modernism. But it was very important for us that it wasn't ironic, the miniature painting, it wasn't like with Coca-Cola bottles or, you know, which what a lot of people do. We still wanted to keep the beauty of the medium. And we had the setting in Villa Sarabai that we've been to many, many times. And, and this painting really, it took him a year to make this painting. And, and when you see the level of detail and how he's really interpreted the Sarabai house and the sky, which is very much in an Indian miniature style. And then you have Krishna who's sitting on a daybed, designed by Jonathan and me, again inspired by Chandigarh. And he's calling to Radha and, and all the kind of gestures of love and beauty. And and then you have this kind of, you have all these times coming together. I don't think we could ever get another artist to put that level of work. Uh, and it's a very mythical place. You don't know where you are, really,
0: you know. It is a really beautiful object. And how as, as a miniature, how physically big is it?
1: It's about... 80 centimetres by maybe 70, 80 by 60. I can measure it, maybe 70 uh, by 90, something like that.
0: Okay. And what, what, what mediums it painted in?
1: He, so he makes his own paints. So there are minerals that he uh, mixes and there's flour and uh, flour essence, flour colours, there's turmeric, there's also cow urine that's used in this, the yellow that you see of Krishna's robe. And that's okay. actually, his father gave it to him and that was the last bit he has. So it's actually fluorescent because it's got cow urine in it, you know. So that yellow is just really, really intense and he doesn't have the recipe for it anymore. <laughs> yeah. The stone, you know, so he mixes stone and stone, so he makes his own colours actually, so he doesn't buy the colours, it's all natural pigments that he uses. And often he uses a brush which has one hair of a squirrel's tail. And And, you know, he talks about um, how sad he feels when the brush dies, you know, and when he knows it's not useful anymore.
0: What I love about this is that it's such an incredibly unique scene and such a unique way of of, of depicting things. Um, And it's, like you say, it's, it's, it's modern and it's ancient all at the same time and all the all the things in in the picture seem to have such personal resonance whether it's pieces that you've designed or works of art that that you love or even what looks like a Hindustan ambassador in the background.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: is it the
1: classic which is classic very much Indian some, Absolutely. And and I think also even on the cow that you see the hands, the red hands on the cow, it's very much what because cows are worshipped in India, it's a kind of, you put the red vermilion on the hands and you make the imprint on the cow. And, and also, if you see the rust on the stairs, which is part of the, the railing, where the railing meets the concrete. And, and then of course, there's a Malevich in that painting as well, which is one of my favourite paintings. And Jonathan asked Shamiji to, that was a surprise in the painting for me. I didn't know it was there. And, uh, and of course, Shamiji says, Nipa, the frame is not quite straight <laughs> of the painting. So it's, and also, Jonathan actually worked with Shami. It wasn't me. I wasn't involved in the process. I was just the translator. Uh, you know, I would just translate it into Hindi because he couldn't always understand what Jonathan was saying. But then Jonathan would do a perspective drawing on the computer sometimes and send it to Shamiji. And so it was very much a back and forth process between them. And I was the translator.
0: So in a way, it's, it's an object that embodies your life, your life together and your work in in a, such a sort of compact way that it's um, it, it has a sort of sense of a, I don't know, 19th or 20th century sort of painting of an artist's studio or one of those paintings you would see of the Royal Academy before it opened with everyone's work in it, for example.
1: Yes. Yeah, just like that. I never thought of it that way. So it's absolutely one of the most precious things we have. We're working on another painting with him as well. That one's going to be based uh, in uh, B. V. Doshi's office in Ahmedabad. That's the backdrop. So we are doing it with modernist architecture in India. That seems to be the theme, you know.
0: But I think I'm, I've gathered from the, the two things we've talked about, both the portrait of your grandfather and this painting here, is that there's the memory within them seems to be just as important that, and the memory that the the paintings embody seem to be just as important as the actual objects themselves. Would you agree? Uh,
1: Absolutely. You know, when I look at the painting, for example, of the Sarabai house, and I've been there so many times, had, you know, cups of tea. I've had dinner there looking at a big Picasso in front of me and Corbusier's original drawing. So for me, it's extremely evocative. When I look at that painting, I'm in that house. It's also, uh, you know, where I worked with my aunt who's had a workshop of 50 master craftswomen. You know, we created our Moroso collection there. It's a city where I learned design. And it's really evocative to me, the peacocks in the garden, you know, it was all there and the monkeys. and, And I think, of course, my grandfather's painting is, it really reminds me of my childhood and my summer holidays in that house and eating mangoes, stealing them from my grandmother's offering to God. You know, I'd be the first one to eat them. And it was a very magical time and, and full of beauty, although not beautiful, but for me, the environment that I grew up, which was very, very eclectic, very intense, but very plural. It was really my idea of, of heaven. I thought that's what heaven would be like with a lot of traffic and cows and architecture from different environments, a workshop and tea maker. And so I think for me, the whole idea of plurality is just in my brain, you know, and, and it's very evocative.
0: These are beautiful objects. Nipadashi, thank you very much indeed for joining the Wallpaper Vodafone podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for letting me be here.
0: Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode of Found Objects of Meaning, please subscribe, leave a review and be sure to share it with your friends. I'd like to thank our guest and also our collaborators, Vodafone Smart Tech, who are creating innovative smart devices to help people stay connected to what matters most in their lives. Search for Vodafone Smart Tech to discover more. Wallpaper Magazine is the global authority on all things about contemporary design and new creativity. To find out more about us, head to wallpaper.com. Until next time, goodbye.